Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, we're going to sit down with a woman overseeing an unprecedented process here in the United States. Camila Moore is chairing California's task force on reparations. We'll also get the latest on a recall election in rural Shasta County, where a county supervisor was targeted by a local militia group that thought Republican Leonard Modi was not conservative enough. And Scott, you were up there a few weeks ago reporting on that. We are going to talk about that. But But first, lots happening uh, in the Sacramento world. Single pair (laughs) died this week in the state legislature. (laughs) We also had yet another mask gate involving the governor. Um, Before we get to Shasta County, let's just let's talk about those two sort of big pieces of news quickly. We had Ash Collar on here a couple weeks ago, the assembly member who authored the single pair health care bill. And I think what was interesting this time around was that it it seemed to split the Democrats in a in a new and interesting way. <laughs> it did, but we'll never know because the bill never came up for a vote, actually. Right. Ash Calra pulled it. Uh, he said he was a dozen, I think, or no, double digits short of what he needed, 41 votes. And, you know, this, <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> uh, at least 10, at least 10 short. And, yeah, you know, it's, this is one of those litmus test issues now for some Democrats, certainly the Nurses Association. Gavin Newsom ran with, you know, very full-throated support for right. single-payer. We might look back on that and say that was a little, maybe a little cynical to do that. Jerry Brown, of course, said it was too expensive, can't do it. Uh, But Gavin Newsom, I think some people felt he would really embrace it. And so this bill comes up. It had to pass uh, out of the assembly by Monday, and it just never got pulled. It didn't come up for a vote. And I thought it was interesting what the speaker said, Speaker Rendon, who basically criticized Ash Calra for pulling it, saying, I would have voted for it. Right, but you're the speaker. Like, you literally are the one with control over what comes up for a vote. I mean, this is not out of step, though, with the way Brendan has led, I guess is the word, but I mean, he's not, he really does lead from behind. I mean, that is his sort of idea is to let the members, I think, take the lead. We saw this, you know, in appropriations when there were bills killed sometimes in years past where he said, well, that was up to the approach chair. Um, I think that clearly Ash Kalra, you know, was in a position where he did not either want to make some members take a tough vote that was going to lose anyway, but also probably, I mean, this is a huge step back for the single payer movement, but it probably would have been a bigger setback if they had had those, you know, votes on a page to go with. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if you're, the, you know, in the nurses union or a healthcare worker who was looking forward to this, it doesn't really matter. It's a, you know, difference without, you know, without much of a difference. But, I mean, we should also say, even if it had passed, it would have probably had a very tough going in the Senate. We don't know if the governor would have signed it. And then, 
you know, none of that had funding in it. It would have had to go to the voters right. with a ballot measure. And, you know, vo- you know, to ask voters to pass a tax increase, you know, on even if it's just on corporations and others who you think are not you, it's tough because yeah. there's a big money campaign against it. Absolutely. Um, one other thing before we get to Shasta, speaking of the governor, he was at the playoffs this weekend the, at, at uh, SoFi Stadium down in L.A. And like many other Democrats, was photographed without a mask on um, at a stadium where, you know, the health department had said in L.A. they did want people to mask. They are going to be requiring it or at least encouraging it, according to the California report today, um, at the Super Bowl in a few weeks. And, you know, I think for critics of the governor, this was just like another example of hypocrisy. Um, But to me, what's more interesting is sort of what's next, because what we're talking about right now as this Omicron surge dies down is, I think, a real sort of reckoning with how do we untangle a lot of these health regulations and restrictions. Um, And I think that there's a real sense among folks, not just on the right anymore, but on the left that kids shouldn't necessarily be masking outside at school or maybe even inside. And I just I'm going to be watching for kind of how he handles the next few weeks, given this controversy, but sort of the broader question of COVID restrictions. Yeah, I mean, it does kind of take away or diminish his uh, moral authority when it comes to telling people what to do around masking. But, you know, in his defense, it was the Super Bowl. He was having his picture taken with the Magic Johnson. He was having a good time. And I think like a lot of people, the governor, you know, kind of has probably mask fatigue. I know I do. That said, he is the leader. And, uh, you know, you have to kind of walk the talk, I guess. But I think, um, you know, we are clearly going to move into a phase where this becomes endemic. And, well, uh, and he's saying that. Yeah, I mean, we're we talking. Have to just learn how to yeah. live with and, it. Without, and I do think, yeah. like, that's what I'll be watching is like, how do governors like Newsom, who have overseen some of the most sort of restrictive policies, especially compared, it wasn't the Super Bowl. I might have said yeah. Super Bowl. Yeah. The Super Bowl's there, but not it's, it's wasn't be last there. weekend. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be watching to see who's maskless there, too, I guess. I don't know. I don't really care. Okay. Um, all right. So let's talk Shasta. Um, we have a guest here to fill us in, but Scott, as I mentioned before, um, you actually went up to Shasta recently and did a story on this recall and sort of the, the state of play there. So give us the, the quick sort of recap. Yeah, the quick recap is uh, Shasta County, very conservative, went 65 percent for Donald Trump in 2020. All the board of supervisors, all five of them are Republican. But there is an even more conservative faction or factions up in Shasta County. And one of those factions, the militia, uh, helped organize a recall election that was on the ballot yesterday. Leonard Modi, a former Reading police chief, a Reagan Republican in his own his own words, uh, was facing recall. Uh, there's still some ballots to count. He is now behind. Uh, it's unclear exactly uh, what will happen. There'll be some more ballots counted, maybe hundreds, if not thousands, left to count. But um, it doesn't look good for him keeping his seat. Well, and we have a guest here with us. Donnie Chamberlain is the editor of A News Cafe. It's a website, a news website up there. Um, and Donnie, you have been following all of this and and really been... Um, I think targeted by some of the same critics as uh, as uh, Leonard Modi. Um, can you talk to us about how you see this all playing out? Well, um, I'm not really sure how it's going to play out. We've been following this story for a couple of years since the first whiff of um, the alt right ultra conservative groups, including some of the militia members, have said they wanted to recall basically everybody on the board of supervisors except for their guy Patrick Jones. So today there's going to be an announcement from the county clerk's office to let us, ostensibly, to let us know about those last counted ballots. 
and the margin, the spread is very, very narrow right now, but it looks like the recall will pass and that Leonard Modi will probably lose his seat. Um, so that's where we are. And then that would mean that um, whichever of the candidates who put their names on the ballot, the recall ballot gets the most vo votes, even by one vote, um, will win that seat. And tell, tell us about the sort of the tone up there. I mean, uh, this was something that divided the county. I mean, you can see from the closeness of this vote. But what was the tone of it like and how did it feel uh, living up there while this was unfolding? It's been like living in a pressure cooker for two years. I mean, Shasta County, um, as you mentioned at the at the top, is a is a very conservative county, but people got along. Um, I'm a Democrat, and um, but what this has done is it has divided, even subdivided the Republicans. And I think if anything good comes from this, to try to find the silver line, lining, is that um, it's brought moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans together to join forces against this extremist group of people. On the other hand, though, it does look like the recall will succeed. And we know that the two top candidates um, themselves are aligned with these militia groups. H how do you like where do you see things going? I mean, a lot of the criticism of Modi was around not pushing back hard enough against the state. I mean, you know, short of a lawsuit or just, you know, throwing up your hands and saying we're not going to follow state state regulations. Do you have any sense like practically what a new board of supervisors would do differently? Well, yeah, I do. Patrick Jones has said all along it's a numbers game and he wants to swing the votes to three, two on the extremist favor. But, you know, the people who have complained about Modi and honestly, um, the recall is based upon, you know, misinformation. And for them to say that Leonard Modi didn't push back against the governor, Leonard Modi, if he'd stuck, if these people had stuck around to the end of meetings sometimes, he would say how he contacted somebody in the governor's office and and reminded them that Shasta County is it's not a one size fits all. We're a small rural area and none of the supervisors agreed with the governor's mandates. Not one citation has been written, not even you could even say not even a slap on a wrist, maybe the threat of a slap on a wrist wrist. So um, I, I am very worried about what I see as the kind of the beginning of the end of Shasta County government and civility as we know it here. And I know that sounds like hyperbole and exaggeration, but um, there have been talk about, there's been talk about dismantling the resources management department, which is the area that Reverge Anselmo, the millionaire who's helped fund this recall, um, that's, it looks like he's trying to get revenge against the county. And so I don't know. I'm, I'm very worried. Real quick question, then we're going to let you go. Uh, uh -huh, sure. Do you think that now that they feel emboldened, assuming this recall succeeds, are they going to try to get rid of other elected officials? For example, one of the, the militia leader, uh, Woody Clendenin, said they want to go after the uh, district attorney next. Well, actually, in uh, the June 2022 election is going to be there's a whole slew of the district attorneys up for reelection. The, there's the sheriff's seat that's up for election the superintendent of schools, not to mention districts one and five. So I think it's kind of like the nose, uh, the camel's nose under the tent. And in this case, though, now that the tent has been ripped open, I just see a stampede of the alt-right people rushing in. And frankly, I see an exodus of the good people leaving Shasta County. I mean, who would want to serve on a school board 
knowing you're going to be under attack or threatened. And so I see a lot of these elected positions being filled by extremists and, and basically anarchists, which sounds like a strong word, but that's the only word you could use to describe what's happening here. All right. That is Donnie Chamberlain. She is uh, editor, writer, uh, creator of a news cafe website up in Shasta County. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Donnie. All right. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll be joined by California Reparations Task Force Chair Camila Moore. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randal Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we are thrilled to have Camila Moore with us. She is a professor, a lawyer, and chair what is officially known as, this is really long, Scott, hang on, the Task Force to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans with a Special Consideration for African Americans who are Descendants of Persons Enslaved in the United States. Camila Moore, welcome to The Breakdown. (laughs) And she says she's not a professor. I'm, <laughs> so many titles, though, so many and, and, and quite a few uh, academic titles as well. Um, Camila, we're very happy to have you today. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. And yes, not a professor, but um, attorney by training and a repertory justice scholar. Yeah, so well, we want to we want to explain that before we get into the task force work too deeply. Let's talk a little bit about your background and, and what you've studied and, and really how it's prepared you for this moment and this job. I know you wrote a master's thesis exploring the intersections between international law and repertory justice for the transatlantic slave trade, shadow slavery and their legacies. Um, another mouthful. But tell us tell us about that. What, what have you really spent your life's work doing? Yeah, so I went to Columbia Law School with the express intention of wanting to study reparations. Um, And so, you know, I I studied at uh, Columbia Law School, but while I was there, I also um, earned a Master of Laws or dual degree um, in international criminal justice from the University of Amsterdam. So while I was in the Netherlands, um, I was writing that thesis that you talked about on on repertory justice for the transatlantic slave trade, uh, the institution of slavery and the afterlife or the legacy of chattel slavery. And um, I really utilized that research and what I learned 
um, in terms of, you know, international criminal law and how it intersects with, you know, for instance, U.S. constitutional law um, to, you know, really use those those assets of what, what I've learned and apply it to the domestic context of how do you atone for America's original sin, which many believe is, you know, the institution of slavery and I, how it affects today. I know that you've <laughs> studied uh, aspects of discrimination and uh, inequality around the world in Brazil, Papua New Guinea. Um, maybe you looked at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa after apartheid. What have you learned from these various things around the world that you think you can apply to what you're doing right now in California? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, um, I've studied um, labor rights and the intersection between labor rights and racial justice um, as it impacts Black Brazilians. I've gone and traveled to Papua New Guinea and helped with reparations claims um, as it relates to uh, what women have experienced there. Um, And also in writing my thesis, you know, I've studied reparations models um, globally and in the domestic context. And so um, in terms of what I've learned and what I hope to apply for the California Reparations Task Force, um, I would hope that, you know, uh, what comes out of California is as comprehensive as possible in terms of a rec- reparations package. And what that means is whatever comes out of this task force, it must comport to international standards of uh, repertory justice, which means that um, I would consider the task force success if you know, the reparations compa- uh, package um, includes, you know, under international law, the five forms of reparation. So compensation, restitution, rehabilitation, satisfaction, and guarantees of non-repetition. And the most successful reparations models around the world um, include at least those five forms, amongst other elements as well. Awesome. All right. So let's get into what this task force is charged with doing. Um, this legislation laid out pretty specific things. Uh, and, and I want to kind of put a pin in the reparations part, because even though that's the center of it, you guys have a, a charge to really create a report laying out the history, um, proposed changes to discriminatory, discriminatory laws that exist now, and potentially craft a state apology. So how are you going about this? Like, that's a lot of work to do. Yeah, so we have a two-year timeline, and and to compare, right, um, the Japanese Reparations Commission in the 80s, um, they had a a three-year timeline. So we have a two-year timeline. So our work as a nine-member task force sunsets of July 2023, Um, and so we've been meeting since June of this past year. And we've had a series of meetings um, spanning from, of course, um, discussing the institution of slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. We've talked about more contemporary harms against Black Americans as it relates to housing uh, segregation, um, education segregation, environmental racism, racism in banking, wealth, tax and labor. Um, we've, in, we've invited expert witnesses and people to provide personal testimony on these topics. We've also discussed, for instance, discrimination in, in um, the technology field. We've held a series of panels on health as it relates to public health, physical health, mental health. We've also hosted a public virtual hearings on the concepts of or topics of homelessness, gentrification, um, and even entertainment, arts, sports, and culture. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to say, like, okay, so there's all those things. Um, how does it relate 
to slavery? Because California came into the Union as a free state, and a lot of people are going to say, well, we didn't have slavery. Like, we'll go down to Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia and <laughs> South Carolina. You know, those people, they're, they're, they're the problem, not California. So how, you know, how do you respond to that? Yeah, so we, um, you know, tackled that issue pretty early on in our task force. Um, so at our hearing in September of 2020, we invited expert witnesses like uh, Professor Stacy Smith out of Oregon State University and others uh, who have uh, contributed their life's works to um, discussing or studying California's role in perpetuating uh, the institution of slavery. And so I'll just provide one example in terms of time. Uh, but for instance, yes, California was admitted to the union as a free state, but many people don't know that California also enacted a Fugitive Slave Act, right, in 1852. And so um, in the event that Black people uh, were found in California, let's say they were free and they were mining for gold. Um, Robert Perkins is, is, a, is an example of that. Um, under this Fugitive Slave Act, they could be rounded up like property and shipped right back to the South and to enslavement. How important is that aspect, the education, the history, right? Because, I mean, you just laid out one example, but there are many, many in California, including our ban on interracial marriage that persisted into the 20, well into the 20th century. So, I mean, do you see that as kind of the first step in getting to the bigger sort of nut of this of reparations, which is just like getting people on board with what we're talking about? Yes, I think that's the that, that's the that's the biggest step. It's about educating not only black Californians about this history, but all Californians about this history so that we're all educated about, you know, these topics and so that there there can be a more a groundswell of support uh, for these reparations proposals, um, because, again, this is a task force to study and develop proposals for uh, reparations proposals, but it's then still up to the California legislature to adopt this. So we would hope that. Yes. Go ahead. So you're making the case to them too, <laughs> this whole way around. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people might think of reparations as like a check, you know, cash, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm guessing based on what you said a moment ago, that you're thinking about this much, much more broadly. And I wonder if could you just give us a sense of, I know you have a lot of work to do before you come up with recommendations, but like, what is the range of ways in which these injustices could be addressed? Yeah, so as I stated, under international law, right, um, compensation or check is just one form. And, and compensation doesn't even necessarily have to come in the form of a check, right? We know that. Um, it can come in different forms and instrumentalities. And then that's something that we would have to... Um, study and develop during this process. But to your point, um, there's other forms of reparations under international law as well, such as rehabilitation. So that could look like, you know, subsidies for um, free mental health or substance abuse uh, uh, programs and things like that. Restitution is the accounting for stolen land, stolen wealth, stolen intellectual property. And Bruce Beach is a prime example of reparations in the form of restitution, right? A family that's land was taken away by virtue of, of eminent domain. Um, then there's, you know, satisfaction, which deals with, you know, formal apologies, commemorations, statues um, to, to honor, you know, Black Americans and their contributions to California. And then lastly, uh, guarantees of non-repetition. So that's a conversation around how, uh, how can we guarantee California or, you know, entities within to, you know, guarantee to stop harming 
um, the victim group per se. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's a conversation about police reform, um, sentencing reform, um, things like that. So it can be very. Yeah, I was going to say, so just a few things on the list there. I mean, again, your work cut out for you. I want to talk, though, uh, when we do talk about who could be the beneficiary um, of this, you know, Assembly, former Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, now Secretary of State, who wrote the law that, you know, created this commission, um, made clear in that title I read that she does see a distinction between descendants of actual slavery in the U.S. and other black Californians. So how does that inform the work y'all are doing? Like, does that mean that 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 would limit potentially who could get reparations, whatever those look like? Well, yes, we we wanted to hear from Secretary Weber because she was the lead author of the bill. Um, But again, she's not um, uh, on the task force. It's up to the member task force in terms of who is eligible for reparations. And so at our last meeting in January, we decided that the task force will make a final vote at our next meeting, February 23rd and 24th, as to who is eligible. So we um, definitely are taking uh, Secretary Weber's um, um, statement into consideration. We're also planning to hear from UC Berkeley Dean Erin Chemerinsky in February, who will also uh, provide his legal opinion on, on eligibility. Uh, but we will be making that final vote um, February 23rd and 24th. So I would say stay tuned. I wonder, you know, uh, how much diversity of thought there is on the task force. For example, just along generational lines, man, you're like 29 or 30, I think. And I can imagine that you and somebody like Shirley Weber, Dr. Weber, might have a different view of uh, this whole issue. Like, what do you you hear from your, not, not necessarily just the task force members, but, you know, your peers about this? Right. Um, so there, I, I, I hear you. I think there might be generational differences around the concept of eligibility, but I think there's also like ideological differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, on the task force, you know, there are there are people are on our task force who you know think all Black Californians should be eligible, regardless of Native or um, immigrant status. And then you know there are others on the task force who have. A different opinion or who align themselves more with the opinion of Secretary Weber. So we'll see. well, how I mean, we kind of mentioned that part of the job is is this idea of educating um, to get to a place where not just the legislature, but the public is, is open to whatever recommendations the task force comes mm-hmm. up with. And as you very well know, this is a controversial idea, um, even within the Democratic Party. How are you thinking about the politics or are you? Is that your job? Like, you know, how how do you approach that? Well, we're definitely thinking about the politics and we've also um, started to implement uh, what we, we call a community engagement plan or process. So we're in the process of, you know, enlisting uh, community organizations from all different backgrounds and sectors um, in California to host listening sessions throughout the state of California, whether it's northern, central, or southern, to hear from different communities about the topic of reparations and the work that we're doing, um, because it's really important that we um, gain a broad-based support um, and coalition for this work. I think the task force has subpoena power. How are you thinking you might use that? 
Yes. So the task force does have subpoena power. And we, um, as a nine member task force, elected members Don Tamaki and members Lisa Holder, who um, have many years of experience as uh, civil rights attorneys to be on our sub subpoena power advisory committee. And so at our last uh, hearing, they came back to us with an update and stated for now, we're gonna be using our subpoena power um, um, in conjunction or in support with public defender's office across the state um, uh, to subpoena um, particular entities to help embolden this new legislation. Uh, called the Racial Justice um, Act. <laughs> um, and so I would say just stay tuned, um, but there's going to be some big news around that. Um, yes. You don't want to break a little news right now? <laughs> <laughs> it's like I can't get ahead of myself. So uh, what do you see, you know, cutting into this next year and a half, two years of work, like as the biggest obstacle to ultimately getting whatever you all put forward, you know, into law and sort of accepted? Well, I think uh, Senator Bradford uh, mentioned this in a, in a, in a previous interview uh, this week around our efforts. And it's really about, um, you know, the legislature. You know, we were going to need champions in the California state legislature to not only, you know, uh, you know, lead these bills, um, but we, we need, we need, you know, majority of folks to vote for whatever comes out, whether, you know, we, we come up with a bill package, right, ready to go for them to take um, and, and, and sign on to, um, or whether it's, it's, you know, we provide the proposals and then it's up to them to translate our proposals into actual legislation. Essentially, the short answer is it's going to be the California legislature. <laughs> yeah. Any, any sense of where the governor is on this? Um, well, the governor signed uh, the bill into law, which created the reparations task force. And so um, I think he is in support of, of what we're doing um, by virtue of him signing the yeah, legislation. Yeah. Devil's in the details, as they say. All right. <laughs> Camila Moore, chair of the California Reparations Task Force. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. All right. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarotti, our engineer, Katie McMurrin. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. Have a good weekend. Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California, the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and 
I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. <laughs>